We are in the third week of the book of Ruth, a beautiful love story here found in the Old Testament, four chapters long. It's short in writing, but big and impactful in understanding of God's love for us, a redeeming story, a love story here. Uh, we started a couple Sundays ago with Ruth chapter one. Last Sunday, we jumped into Ruth chapter number two. Today, we're going to look at Ruth chapter three. If you've missed any of those uh, previous Sundays, feel free to go back online. All of our messages are archived there. All of our series are archived there. And we'd love for you to jump in and catch up with us. But today, we're going to turn to Ruth chapter number three. Uh, if you'd like to take notes today, I encourage you to do that. We got a lot, lot of scripture we're going to share today, a lot of thoughts. And so if you're at one of our physical campuses, there's a sermon note card in the seat back pocket right in front of you. We encourage you to take that out, grab a pen, take some notes today. If you're going to use your smartphone, that's a great way to take notes. Just maybe turn it on airplane mode during church so that you don't get distracted from who knows what. There's a lot that could distract you today. But all right, let me pray for you. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me. I have never preached a sermon since I've turned 41 years old. Come on, somebody. So I'm nervous. Thank you for all the birthday love this week. Father, uh, we honor you. We give you thanks uh, for our time together. All through worship and even before then, when I got uh, to the campus early this morning, I have sensed the Spirit of God moving, the Holy Spirit working. I'm not foolish to believe that people aren't going through challenges and difficulties. I know that many have walked in to one of our campuses or clicked the link online that they are dealing with overwhelming difficulties, overwhelming burdens, overwhelming pains. Some might be in a season of celebration and joy in their life. And so wherever we find ourselves on that spiritual spectrum, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to encourage us. I need your touch. I believe that you have shared some um, truths and understanding through this particular chapter. You've put them in my heart to share to your people today. But God, I'm just asking that you would use me. Uh, I'm overwhelmed at that, that you would use somebody like me. And I pray that the anointing of the living God would just speak through me today. We quote this scripture a lot in preparation of our time together, but I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I'm not trying to impress anybody today, Lord, maybe just you, but I hope that this message and these words uh, that I've prepared and prayed over through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that they would penetrate to the hearts of your children and that we would be impacted and that lives would be forever changed. God, I'm a work in progress myself. I'm wrestling with some things within my own self. And I thank you that in spite of me, God, in spite of us, God, you still speak and you still move and you still draw us closer to you. So as there is no way that this is an attempt to stand on this platform, hold this microphone and pretend that I'm perfect and I've got it all together. As a matter of fact, the more I study through this book of Ruth, the more I, I'm thankful for a, a, a redeemer that would love me enough to buy me back. And that's what this story is about. So we give you our time together and I pray that over the next 40 minutes, God, that the spirit would arrest hearts and that we would leave here different than when we walked in. And the most precious name, the name of Jesus, we pray. And if that is your prayer, can you say amen? And now let's put our hands together for Jesus. Come on, let's do that. All right. Awesome. 
So the book of Ruth, if you have your Bible, I want you to flip there. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, many of you, you have a, a smartphone or a smart device, and, and I appreciate that you use that. If you have a physical Bible, you're going to flip to the Old Testament. I want to show you the first five chapters of the Old Testament, and then I'll show you the next five chapters here so that you can see where Ruth is found, not only for quick reference, but also because I think it's important to understand how this book and the story is sandwiched in a time and an era that was really, really challenging, a great difficulty. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, according to the Hebrew language and tradition, these first five books would be known as the Torah. According to the Greek, these first five books would be called the Pentateuch, five books that open up the entire Bible. The next five are followed with Joshua, Judges, on the count of three, shout Ruth, one, two, three, Ruth, first and second Samuel, and then first and second Kings. This is important to our conversation today because I'm going to reference this often, but the book of Ruth was written in the time of the Judges. So whenever you think about Judges, don't think of Judges as just a, a book within the Bible. It's not only a book, but it is a time in history. And so Ruth and this whole story is written in the time of Judges. This would be the time where Israel had no, watch this, no king. So Ruth is sandwiched between the time of the Judges and before there would ever be a king of Israel. Uh, judges 21 verse 25 says this, and again, I'll reference this particular verse a number of times in our conversation today. In those days, in the days of the Judges, watch this, there was no king in Israel. And let's read this last line together in unison on three, one, two, three. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's do that together. Ready? One, two, three. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this whole book, the book of Ruth, was written during the time period of Judges when there was no king of Israel, and the people did whatever they wanted, whatever they felt, whatever they thought was right. There was no real law, no real rule. They just kind of went with the flow as culture and society would haven't, so went the people. Now, when we get to the book of Ruth, Ruth, again, four short chapters. You can read it in 15 minutes. I highly encourage you to do that. It is a powerful book, a short book, but when you read it, here's what you won't see and what you will see. Within the book of Ruth, there are no miracles. There's not a miracle recorded. There are no supernatural visitations. God doesn't open up heaven and an angelic being descend from heaven and visit the people. There are no real divine revelations that you see written in this, in this book. Here's what the book is about. It's a story about death, a story about loss, a story about grief. It's a story about these widow women. Yet what makes it so unique is that throughout the entire book, or really throughout the entire story, you're going to see the hand of God at work in miraculous, supernatural and divine ways, and God's hand is working in an effort to redeem. So we get to chapter one, a quick recap here, and I promise to keep this quick and concise, but in chapter one, we see the story starts off, and it's full of tragedy and death. So you have a man by the name of Elimelech. He is the father of his family. He's got a wife. Her name is Naomi. They have two sons. The two sons marry two Moabite women, one by the name of Orpah, the other by the name of Ruth. Within a 10-year period, Elimelech 
and his two sons, so all three of the family's men, the leaders of their home, they all die, leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth as widows. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, you don't have to stay committed to me any longer. You can go back home and be with your family and start a new family. And she even says in one of the verses, I mean, are you going to wait for me to have children? If I have a child today, you're going to wait for that child to grow up and marry that child? So she releases them to go back to their home. Orpah takes off and she goes back home. But Ruth remains incredibly loyal to her mother-in-love, Naomi. And watch what Ruth says in the, the 16th verse here of chapter 1. Don't urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, that if even death separates you and me. We see chapter 1 full of tragedy and loss and grieving and widows. And now we see Naomi and Ruth as we move into chapter number two. They are, they are jobless, homeless, have no food, they have no money. But watch this, the whole chapter, the second chapter, is full of hope. On the count of three, everybody shout hope. One, two, three. And God can do that. God is in the business of taking hopelessness and making it hopeful. Can I get a witness from somebody? So even in the darkest moments, even in the most difficult of situations, God is sovereign and he is strategic and he can take those challenges and he can take those setbacks and turn them into divine setups. That's what we talked about last Sunday. Here's how chapter two kind of plays out. There was an influential man in Bethlehem. His name was Boaz. Boaz was a relative, and this is an important piece here. He was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Ruth who was the Moabite, said to Naomi, here's what I'm going to do. We don't have food. We don't have money. We don't have jobs. We don't have a place to live. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to the fields, and I'll pick up whatever leftover grain people drop. So if anyone drops some grain, I'll pick it up, and we'll consider that to be the favor of the Lord. Well, some might call it happenstance. We call it divine intervention. Naomi and Ruth, uh, Naomi sends Ruth out in the fields, Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz. She's not on his payroll. She's not an employee, but she's picking up the leftover grain. He blesses her. He sees her. He prays over her. He tells the men, I don't want one man to lay hands on her. Nobody touch her. He offers her food and a job, and he offers her water, and he's just incredibly kind to Ruth and obviously to Naomi as well. Well, Ruth returns from one of her days on the job, and she begins to explain to Naomi all that's happening, and Naomi is over the moon. And this is what she says, the Lord bless him, bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living, which would be Naomi and Ruth, and he's not stopped showing his kindness to the dead, which would be Elimelech and his family. And then she added, that man is our close relative. He is our what? Kinsman. Redeemer, and we talked through this, but if you're taking notes, let's just see this real quickly. Kinsman Redeemer, not a very uh, cultural practice today, but in this particular time period, incredibly much practiced. The Kinsman Redeemer was responsible to act on the behalf of a relative who might be in trouble, or a relative who was in danger, 
or to act on behalf of a relative that, that might be in need. If you were the kinsman redeemer, uh, you would be designated to deliver or to rescue or to redeem property or to redeem a person. And so now we see God's hand at work and why chapter two is full of hope because they went without food and, and money and shelter to Ruth ending up in the middle of Boaz's field who would be considered a kinsman redeemer. This man would have some heavy responsibility to take care of Elimelech's family who would remain. And then today, today we get into chapter number three. And if I were to label chapter number three or to theme out chapter number three, I consider it to be a turning point. It's a turning point in the story. If you're taking notes, this isn't on the TV, but write this word down. This is the shift that Naomi and Ruth have been waiting for. And I just want to speak this over you today. I felt this in my prayer time leading up to our conversation today and even heavier this morning. I don't know what the previous chapters of your life have looked like. I don't know what your story has been up to this point in your life. But I believe that today can be a turning point for you. I believe that today there can be a shifting for you. And I speak that over you. I speak that over, over you, over your marriage, over your children, over your finances, over your health. Can somebody receive that? Come on. Over your business, over your studies, over your academics, over your extracurriculars, whatever it is that you've been hoping for, whatever it is that you've been praying for, whatever it is that you've been believing for, and you feel like your back has just been against the wall, I think today is a turning point for you. Today is a shifting for you. Can I get 100 people that would receive that? Like it's happening today. What the devil meant for evil, God can turn it for good. So, so again, it is a setback in your eyes, but it is a setup in the eyes of God. And this story, when we get to chapter 3, there is just a shift. It's a supernatural shift. And I don't want to get ahead of my notes here, but the women go from mourning to preparing for the new season. They go from grieving to having great anticipation for what's next. And I wish you'd hold on to that. That while you might be in a season of mourning and grieving and loss and difficulty and pain, you can also have great anticipation that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you might ever ask, think, or imagine. Anybody with me yet? Come on. So it's a shift in the story, and I speak this over you. It is a shift in your life. I read this book multiple times this week. I read this chapter uh, multiple times this week, and I kept asking the Lord, all right, which, which of these verses do we need to talk through? I'm going to do something that occasionally I'll attempt to do, but I'm going to exegete these scriptures here. Here's what that means. 18 verses in chapter number three. We're going to look at all 18 today. Is that all right? So we should be here about an hour and a half or two. Come on, that's all right. You're good. And uh, thank you to the two of you that don't care. The rest of you hang in there. Um, but let's, let's walk through all 18 verses. So you need your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, right here on the screen, let's begin in verse number one of chapter number three. Here's what the Bible says. Then Naomi, the mother-in-law to Ruth, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek, somebody shout rest. Rest for you that it may be well with you. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, this verse can read differently with different translations. Here's why. The Hebrew word for the word rest is the word manawak. Manawak. M-A-N-O-W-A-C-H. Manawak. 
And it literally means security. It means protection. It means safety. It means provision. And all of those definitions are under the umbrella of watch, family, marriage, children. So that's why some of you in the Bible that you're reading, Naomi says, should I not go find a permanent home for you? Should I not go look for a husband for you? What Naomi is saying to Ruth is, you need to have rest. Now, I know that we're in 2021 and women have equal rights and opportunities, and I think that's fantastic. I praise God for that. And so don't take this next thought out of context here. Don't try to, don't try to go all cancel culture on me. Come on. But God orchestrated the godly home that the man should be the spiritual leader of his home, that he should provide for the family, that he should work hard for the family. And I'm not just talking about financially, but I'm also talking about physically and spiritually, that that is the man's job. One of my primary job descriptions as the father of my children and the husband to Kimberly is to provide so that my wife and my kids can have rest. So there is an unsettlingness when it comes to those who are single because they've not yet fully experienced the way that God has orchestrated the family unit. That's why in single homes, there's all kinds of strife and challenges. I grew up in that. I know the dynamic of that. And what Naomi is saying is, if you want true rest, I got a plan. And not only did she say, I've got a plan, but she believes that it is a God plan. And this is her plan. You ready? She says, is not Boaz our relative? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Again, relative is the connection to Boaz being a kinsman redeemer, having the responsibility to take care of Elimelech's family. So she's reminding Ruth that Ruth, watch this, Ruth has a right. She has a right. And then she says, now, just so you know, I saw on Facebook that old Boaz is going to be at uh, the threshing floor tonight, and he'll be winnowing barley. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, you know that it is the barley harvest. It's barley season. Ruth goes to the fields. She's, she's picking up the leftover grain of the barley. Now, the process of winnowing barley uh, was, was, was quite primitive. Uh, they would set up a room called the threshing floor. Oftentimes, it would be an elevated space, maybe to the east side of the city. And then the one in charge of winnowing the barley, here's what they would do. They would take the barley. They would throw it up in the air. They would allow a west wind to blow through the threshing floor. And then that wind would catch the barley and the wind would separate the wheat from the chaff. So does that make sense? So it would, the wheat or the grain would be heavy. So it would drop to the floor. They would collect all of the good stuff, the useful stuff. And the chaff, which was not useful, it was bad, it would blow on by. Does that make sense? So he's winnowing barley. So he'd take, he'd take the barley, throw it up in the air. Uh, he'd keep the good stuff, and the bad stuff would go. He'd keep the useful stuff, and the youth, useless stuff would go. And this is important because if you're looking for a New Testament reference, it's Matthew 3, verse 12. John the Baptist is foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. And John the Baptist talks about Jesus, and here's what he says in Matthew 3, 12. For he has his winnowing fork in his hand, and he is clearing the threshing floor. Do you see that? 
That's why this story of Ruth and Boaz is a beautiful connection. It is an overlap to your story and my story. The verse goes on in Matthew 3, 12, and John the Baptist says that Jesus will collect all of the grain, all of the barley, and he'll keep it for good use. But with the chaff, it will be consumed with an unquenchable fire. What is he talking about? He's talking about those who say yes to Jesus. They will be saved and their confidence is in him, and their hope is in heaven. Can I get an amen? But those who reject him, they will be blown away like the chaff to the eternal place or the lake of fire. Here's the verse there. So now we know that Naomi's got a plan. She says, Ruth, go get your Boaz. Come on, ladies. She says he's at the, the threshing floor, and he's winnowing barley. And then she gives these instructions. She says, wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. I love these instructions here. I think it's appropriate instructions for those who are entering or maybe you're in the dating game. She says, Ruth, you've been working in the field and you stink. Come on, somebody, let's just be honest. Take a bath. Look at somebody near you and say, he's talking to you. Take a bath. She says, wash yourself. Clean yourself up. Put on some perfume. There's something about when Kimberly walks in a room and she's got that perfume on. Come on now. She puts on new clothes. you got to remember this is a time in history where there are no uh, manicure and pedicure salons. There are no day spas where she can go get pampered. The women of this time, they, they didn't shower every day. Some of you ladies are like, well, neither do I. Thank God for dry shampoo. Come on, ladies. But she's saying, take, take a shower. You know, wash yourself. Put on some perfume. Put on some cologne. Now, now, there is a physical responsibility here, and I think this is important, especially if you're going on a date Friday night, all right? But there is a spiritual connection here as well. I said this in the beginning of this conversation, but this is the turning point. This is the moment that Naomi says to Ruth, it's time to come out of the season of mourning, and it's time to walk into the season of anticipation. Take off the, the garment of heaviness and put on a new garment of praise. Do you see what I'm saying? If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 20, there is a man by the name of David. David has a child with a woman named Bathsheba. The child becomes sick, and ultimately the child dies. What does David do as soon as his servants walk in the room and tell him, that his child is no longer alive. He washes himself. He anoints himself. He puts on cologne. And he gets something to eat. Why would David know for that to be a process, well, I feel the Holy Spirit, to move from a season of mourning to a season of anticipation? Because David's great-grandmother was Ruth. Let me tell you this, and I don't know who this is for. I feel this in my spirit. Generations after you are watching you and how you respond to grief and difficulty and trials and pain. In this world, we will have trouble. That's for all of us. None of us are exempt from the challenges of life. But how you respond is critically important, not just to your spiritual health, but to your family's spiritual health. So in your season of pain, are you... Cursing God, blaming God, 
angry at God as your children and your grandchildren look on? Or even in the most darkest moments, do you lift your heavy hands and lift your heavy heart and say, I'm mourning, but I know that God can work this out for my good. Are you with me today? Come on. Wash. Oh, we're going to clap. Let's clap. Come on. There it is. Wash. Anoint. Change your clothes. Naomi says to Ruth, let's move out of the season of mourning and into a season of great anticipation. And then she says, of course, but, but make not yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go. And what do you do? Uncover his feet and lie down at his feet. Now, if you're reading this story with me, one of the first thoughts that come into my mind is like, okay, girl, you go get him. Go take them covers off. Come on, somebody. But, but don't miss what's really happening here. This is not a provocative gesture. This is not a, a, a sexual advance. It's important that you understand the context here. She uncovers his feet and she lies down at his feet. Remember, Ruth had a right to go after her kinsman redeemer. She had a right to go and to claim him as her Boaz. But she wasn't going to do that with a provocative gesture. She didn't go to him. And this is so important. Listen to me. She didn't approach him as a victim. She didn't approach him as someone that says, you know what? You owe me. This is my right. You're going to marry me. I'm going to marry you. You're going to take care of me. It's your responsibility. How did she approach him? As a humble servant, uncovering his feet and lying down at his feet in pure genuine humility. And that's what she does. And then in verse number five, she says this, all that you say, I will do. I hope that this makes sense to our conversation today, but I think it's incredibly powerful that Ruth seeks wise counsel from an older, mature, God-fearing woman. Who do you have in your life? Who's giving you advice? Who's encouraging you in your journey, in your process? Facebook? Social media? Uh, voices from your work? Or maybe in your neighborhood, they don't love God, know God, read the Bible, go to church, but you want to listen to them? I think what we need is we need some, some older believers in our lives to serve as mentors spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers that have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt and can see when you're headed in the right direction or headed in the wrong direction that will give us wise counsel, godly counsel. Can I get an amen? amen. And Ruth says to Naomi, all that you say, I will do. And here's what she did. So she goes down to the threshing floor and she did just what Naomi told her to do. Now, again, let's just circle back on the threshing floor for a moment because I want you to see the risk involved in Ruth's attempt to claim Boaz as her man. Boaz is at the threshing floor. Why? Because this is in the day of judges. There is instability, economic instability in the land. There is lawlessness in the land. So Boaz is protecting his harvest. He wants to make sure that nobody comes in and steals from him what he's worked hard to gain. So now he's at the threshing floor He's worked all day, and watch, he gets something to eat, he grabs something to drink, the Bible says that his heart is merry, 
He goes to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then Ruth comes softly. She uncovers his feet. She lays down at his feet. And at midnight, he was startled. Of course he was startled. Let me, let me give you two thoughts here. Have you ever been sleeping in the middle of the night and the covers come off your feet? Come on, can I get a witness from anybody? Good Lord, some could say that Boaz literally had cold feet. I write my own jokes. Come on, I write my own jokes. You won't find this anywhere but here, I'm telling you that. You're proud of that joke, aren't you, Bishop? Thank you so much. Of course he was startled, and he had cold feet. I don't know. Where are all my married people at? Come on, raise your hand if you're married. Keep it up if you're happily married. Sir, why'd you put your hand down? Turn it down, too. Hands up if you're married. I... Fellas, I don't know if, you're, if your wife has freezing feet like my wife has in the middle of the night, but Kimberly has this desire to take those cold feet. It's like she's been outside all day playing with Olaf in the snow, and then she gets in my bed, and she's going to take those little size six feet and put them up against all this hotness. Come on, somebody. She takes them feet, and it startles me every time. And I'm like, I love you, but I will take you out if you touch me with them cold feet again. Can I get a witness from anybody? Of course he's startled. His feet are cold. And another reason he's startled, it doesn't matter how deep of a sleep you're in, you always know when someone's staring at you when you're sleeping. <laughs> oh, man, I about lost my lunch one night, middle of the night. I'm in a deep sleep. And when I, when I, go, to, when I go to sleep, like, I'm out. And I'm sleeping and I'm dreaming and all of a sudden I'm startled. And I wake up and at this time, my little girl, London, was about three or four years old. She was in a white nightgown. And her hair was in front of her face. And she's just standing like this over me. I wake up and I hear her go, hey, Dad. <laughs> of course you're startled. Feet are cold and somebody's staring at you in the middle of the night. And he says, who are you? Listen, he could have killed her because he didn't know who she was. He was at the threshing floor to winnow the barley, but to protect the harvest. The risk that Ruth took to go get Boaz, and she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. And watch this. She says this. Uh, let's read this entire second sentence, starting with spread your wings together. You ready? One, two, three. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a double meaning. First meaning is this. She's reminding Boaz of his prayer that he prayed over her in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 12. May the Lord be gracious to you and spread his wings over you. So she's saying, hey, remember, remember what you prayed for me. And now I'm, I'm asking for this protection. I'm asking you to spread your wings over your servant because you are a redeemer. The second meaning is this. Listen to me, ladies. This is her proposal. <laughs> Basically, she gets down on one knee. Now, this is her language. You may not find this in a Hallmark card or in a, you know, um, engagement speech today. But she says, spread your wings over your servant. Will you marry me? Will you take me as your wife? Can I, can I have you as your husband? And watch this in verse number 10. I got to hurry. Watch. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And then he says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. What is he talking about? He's talking about how this kindness, this proposal for him to be her redeemer is even more kind than her loyal commitment to Naomi 
So he says, watch, this last kindness, what you're doing here, is even far greater than the first act of loyalty and kindness that you shared. And then he says, because you've not gone after a young man. You came after Boaz. Now, some theologians, rather, uh, they say that the age difference or the age gap between Ruth and Boaz could be anywhere from 20 to 40 years difference. Some believe, if you study the Jewish culture and writings, that at this point in the story, Ruth could have been somewhere around mid-30s to early 40s, which would have made Boaz late 70s to early 80s. Now, I don't know why my mind goes here, but anybody ever watch the TV show Friends? Come on, put your hands up. Just confess a little bit. Some of you are nervous to confess it. It's all right. It's your guilty pleasure. Remember in season two, when Monica Geller goes to get her eyes checked by Dr. Richard Burke. Y'all not going to help me preach. That's all right. Richard Burke was played by Tom Selleck. There you go. Come on now. A lot of people say I look like Tom Selleck the older I get. I appreciate that. Only one person has said that, and it was me. But anyway, I digress. Monica's young. You know, she's, she's a young woman. Richard Burke is 20 years her elder. And in those couple of seasons, they fall, you know, madly in love together. My, my mom and dad, my mother was 17 years younger than my father. When I was born, my mother was 33. My father was 50. I told my dad one day, the older I got, and I started, like, doing math. And I was like, man, when you were 21, she was four. <laughs> I was like, you are a freak, man. You know, I was like, man, like, when you were 30, she was 13. Like, Lord, you know. Obviously, getting older helped. Come on, somebody. But I was sitting there thinking, AJ, number to number, baby. Come on. So can I get yours? Come on, that's what I'm talking about. He says... You've not gone after the young men, but you've come after me. And now, verse 11, now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are, watch, a worthy woman of noble character. Proverbs 31.10. Who can find a wife of noble character? For she is far more worthy than all of the rubies. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon, Ruth's great, great grandson. Verses 12 through 15. If I umbrella all of these verses with one thought, it's this, it's integrity. And I want you to see this. I'm going to read them all and then I'll explain. He says, and now it's true that I am a redeemer, but watch the integrity of Boaz, but there is a redeemer closer than I. And then he says this, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. It's his integrity. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie right here until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another person. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Watch this, verse number 15. And he said, bring me the garment that you're wearing. Hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went back into the city. Look at Boaz's integrity. Two different ways he demonstrates integrity here. The first way is that he honors the process of God's plan. He says, I am a redeemer, but there is one closer than me 
So I'm going to trust God in that process. I'm going to be a man of character and a man of integrity. And if it's God's will, then God's going to make it work out. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to manipulate the process. I'm just going to let the process ride. And if it's God's will, then it's going to happen. A second way that he demonstrates integrity is by protecting both of their reputations. He's not trying to cover up a scandal. They didn't do anything. But he wanted to make sure that no one questioned their reputation or their integrity. So he says, stay here until early in the morning and then get up before everybody else gets up and watch this. And I'm going to put some barley in your garment so that if anybody sees you coming out of the threshing floor, they'll see the barley and they'll just assume that you were here working all night long. But what about Ruth's integrity? Uh, let me, you, got, you got a few more minutes? Okay, watch this. Ruth's integrity is on display. If you go back to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember Lot and his family. They're living in Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, by the way. And God is angry at the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Idolatry, sexual immorality, you name it, it lived in the city. Whatever, it was literally sin city. Well, God's judgment and his anger he had enough, and he had decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he gave Lot and his family a warning to get out of the cities. So Lot takes his wife and his two daughters, and they literally start to head for the hills. In that escape attempt, what did Lot's wife do? She looked back, and the Bible says that she turned into a pillar of salt. Eventually, now it's Lot and his two daughters and they get to the mountains, they get to the hills. And these two widows, these two girls, realize that there is no man left to perpetuate the family lineage. So they come up with a plan. And here's their plan, listen to me. They say, the older daughter says, let's get our dad drunk. Let's get him drunk. I'll get him drunk tonight, you get him drunk tomorrow night. Tonight, I'll have relations with him, Tomorrow, you have relations with them. And that's what these two girls did. The first night, the oldest daughter got her father so drunk, drunk that the Bible says that Lot didn't even know what happened. So some of you might be thinking, well, how much did he drink? A whole lot. <laughs> Y'all not going to help me today. I'm up here giving you my best material. This is good stuff. She sleeps with him one night. The other daughter sleeps with him the second night. Both daughters become pregnant. Now, some of you are like, what kind of story is this? Others of you from Kentucky are like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I get it. Tell me about it. Yep. <laughs> that was offensive. I'm sorry. But you didn't laugh at the other jokes. We'll make you laugh. They both become pregnant with their father's child, and watch what happens. The oldest daughter gives birth to a son first. You know what his name is? Moab. Ruth was a... Moabite. This is her family history. This is her family tree, and it ain't got no branches. <laughs> and now you fast forward to this story. Two widow women with a desire for family and children and to perpetuate the family lineage. In the day of judges, when everybody could do whatever was right 
in their own eyes. And yet, you know what Ruth chose? Purity. Integrity. God's way. Not the lust of the flesh. Listen, I'm not mad at you. I'm not an angry type of preacher. We got too many people living together and you're not married. Too many people shacking up and sleeping together. Saying, well, we're just trying to test things out. That's not God's way. As a matter of fact, listen to me. If you're in that kind of relationship, you're living with your boyfriend or living with your girlfriend, I will marry you today. Today, I'm an ordained minister, an ordained bishop in the church of God. I will marry you today. At the end of all of our gatherings at both campuses, we have child dedication. You hang around, I'll perform a wedding ceremony today for you. Because if you love each other, what are you waiting on? I don't care what culture says. I don't care what society says. I don't care what your family's history is. If you want God's favor, you want God's blessing, you got to do it God's way. Can I get an amen from somebody? Come on. I'm not upset, but listen to me. There ain't no bing bing without the ring ring. She decided we are going to let this relationship be blessed by God because we'll do it God's way. Boaz says, I may lose you in the process, but I'll allow God to walk us through the process together. I won't try to manipulate my own way and get my, you don't think he was, he was like excited to be around her? You don't think he was attracted to her? It's midnight. She's got perfume on. But he says, hey, you stay down there. Stay down there until in the morning. And then I, I'll redeem you. That's beautiful. And can I tell you, no matter what your story is, no matter what your testimony is, no matter what your mistakes are or decisions you've made, and yes, there are consequences, but one moment being redeemed by Jesus and he can turn that whole story around. Come on, if you believe that, give God some praise. Come on. Woo. She came back home to Naomi and she said, you know, Naomi says, how did you fare my daughter? And Ruth told her all about what the man had done for her, two more verses. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley. And he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. Final verse. And Naomi said, wait. I don't like to wait, church. Waiting is painful. Waiting is frustrating. It's not on the TV, but write this down. Your waiting season is not a wasted season. Whatever it is that God is making you wait for, listen to me. It's not punishment, it's preparation. So hang in there. You keep waiting. You keep trusting. You keep believing. And Naomi says about Boaz, you wait until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Isn't this a beautiful chapter? I hope that walking through each verse was an encouragement to you. And when I got to the end of verse number 18, this is what I heard the Holy Spirit say, watch this. Every story that the Bible tells is always pointing to a greater story. Every story, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret here, which you probably already know, but 
Sometimes there are stories that I read in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and I don't always understand them all. And I got, I got more questions than I got answers when I read scripture sometimes. But here's what I know. Every story in that Bible is always pointing me towards a greater story. And here's the greater story. God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave us Jesus. And Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. You and I, listen to me. We are the Ruth in the story. We're hopeless and helpless and lost and without. But Jesus is our Boaz. And he wants to redeem us. That's why he calls us the church, the what? The bride of Christ. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants intimacy with you. So you got a choice to make. You can continue to do things your way, and your plan, and your agenda, and your will, and your desires. But the Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or you can come lay at the feet of Jesus, just like Ruth did with Boaz, not as a victim, but a humble servant, saying, will you take me? Will you accept me? Will you redeem me in all of my brokenness and all of my hurt and all of my grief and all of my pain and all of my mess ups and all of my journey? Will you take me? And watch this. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to Jesus. You just cry out to Jesus and Jesus will clean you up. Come on. And Jesus, he accepts you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that he found you. Come on, church. And the Bible says, the Bible says, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing, nothing. But what Jesus is desiring is for you to say, I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus, to accept me just as I am. And when you do that, I feel the Holy Spirit. And you say yes to Jesus. The favor of God, the forgiveness of God, and the plan of God, that's why it's a turning point. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for choosing me. I lay my life at your feet and I ask for grace and mercy and forgiveness of my sin. And I am confident that regardless of my yesterday, today is a brand new day with you. You will redeem me. So I give you my heart and my life and my family and my marriage and my children and my business and my future. And I say, have your way, Christ Jesus, in me and through me. This is a greater story. And I speak this over you, church. May your next chapter be the best chapter written yet. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And together, everybody said amen and amen. Come on, give Jesus the highest praise.